Well, I want to welcome all of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you who are meeting in person here at Central Campus. So good to be together in person. And uh, also, those of you meeting at uh, all of our other campuses in Airdrie, Bridgeland, uh, South Calgary, and our Bear Spa campus in Northwest Calgary. Uh, so we're in a sermon series entitled, How Then Shall We Live?, in which we've been examining what the scriptures teach about what our primary focus and our primary pursuits should be in life. In this series, uh, we've seen that all through scripture, we are called first and foremost to pursue a genuine friendship with God in the same way that he has been pursuing us all of our lives. Furthermore, we're called to, have, called to love others, to pursue authentic friendships with others. Thirdly, we're called to pursue the mission that Christ has called us to uh, with friends who are committed to the same thing. And fourthly, we're called to pursue a life of generosity, freely, sacrificially, giving of our time, the abilities that God has entrusted to us, and also our financial resources to advance the mission that God has called us to, and also to accomplish God's redemptive purposes in the world, including meeting the needs of the hurting, the working poor, and the marginalized. And fifthly, we're called to pursue a life of simplicity, which is bringing clarity to what is most important to us in life, and then going after that with laser focus. Now, don't raise your hands, but I'm wondering how many of you, in response to what we've been learning in this series of messages, have made changes in your priorities, in your calendar, and in the way that you're living your life. You see, reading God's word um, in your quiet time, hearing God's word taught in a worship service like this, is a good and an important thing. But in Matthew 7, Jesus teaches that just hearing God's word read or taught doesn't go far enough. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. And I just want to point out that the passage that we're about to read together uh, is what Jesus said at the end of his life-impacting Sermon on the Mount. So please join me in reading this passage. Would you just stand with me? Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and, uh, and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we dig into 
what you're saying to us through this, these, this scripture and also others in the book of James. I ask, Lord, that you would focus our minds, Lord, that you'd soften our hearts to receive what you're saying to us, and then, Lord, you'd give us the courage to respond to your call. I pray all of these things in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. So what is Jesus saying in the passage that we just read together? He's saying hearing and doing go together. If all you do is hear the word, you will not grow and become strong in your faith. And God's kingdom will not come to earth. When you do what the Lord asks you to do, not only uh, will a little bit of heaven come to earth, but you will grow in ways that you would never grow by just hearing the word. The Apostle James teaches the same thing. If you have your Bibles, turn to James 1, uh, verse 22. This is what James says. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now, the word listen here means audit. Sort of like auditing a class. Audit a class. Auditing a class, like reading a book, may be good for getting information. But that information is largely useless unless you do something with it. James is saying, what good is it, for example, to attend a class on being physically fit and to have learned gigabytes of information on the subject but never put what you learned into practice, never put on your runners and begin to exercise, for example. He writes, when we do this, we are deceiving ourselves. So how can we deceive ourselves? Well, one way is you can substitute Bible knowledge for spiritual growth. Many sincere people are addicted to getting more knowledge, getting fresh insights and understanding from the scriptures. And they look for it not only in the teaching of the church that they attend, which of course they should, but we'll spend hours listening to sermon podcasts and you know, attending Bible studies and so forth. Now, to be clear, reading, studying, hearing the scriptures taught is a very good thing. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Hearing the scriptures read and taught in worship services like this is important because the journey of faith starts with hearing or reading the word. But sadly, many of these same people will turn a blind eye to opportunities to live out their faith, to put all their Bible knowledge into practice, like, for example, mentoring and shepherding and teaching or serving others in some way. And James writes, if you are neglecting to do what you're reading or what you're hearing, then you're deceiving yourself. You're just auditing the class. 
Spiritual growth and maturity does not come just through the attainment of knowledge. In fact, 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 says that knowledge by itself can lead to pride. No, spiritual maturity comes through putting God's truth into practice. Another way we deceive ourselves is we compare ourselves with other Christians. Even though we know that we're flat out ignoring some of the significant parts of Christ's teaching and call on our lives, we justify our disobedience with thoughts like, well, you know what, I'm more devoted. I'm making greater sacrifices. I'm serving more. I'm giving more than most other Christians I know. And then we read a convicting scripture or we hear a sermon that really challenges us and we avoid applying it to our lives by focusing on those that we think need to apply this to their life a lot more than we do. Another way we could deceive ourselves is thinking that when we feel convicted and emotionally moved by a sermon or a study, that we're growing spiritually. You see, being challenged to change, being emotionally moved to change, is not the same as taking action to change. You can feel convicted every day of the week to change. You can be moved to tears during every worship service or Bible study and even feel closer to God, all of which is good, by the way. But nothing will change if you don't exercise faith and do what God is calling you to do. In verse 23, James describes the problem this way. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. He says, it's like you get up in the morning, you walk into the, into the bathroom, you look in the mirror, and you think to yourself, oh my, my face needs some serious work. But instead of actually giving your face some loving attention, you, you get dressed, you go off to work, oblivious to how scary you actually look. And your coworkers or your fellow students they look at you and they see an unshaven, unwashed face. They see great uh, grease on your nose. Your hair is all disheveled. Those little yellow crusty things are still in your eyes. And spinach is wedged between your teeth. And there's a four inch long hair growing out of your ear. And they say, are you okay? I mean, did you sleep in your car last night? You see, these days... If we know that our face needs some attention, we do something about it. We don't show up at work, freak everyone out, and say, please pray for me. I'm having the hardest time taking care of my face. No, these days, if we know that our face needs some work, we do what's required. At least most of us do. And yet in other areas of our lives, we often know that there are things that require our attention. Like our relationship with God, our relationship with others, our marriages and or our family 
requires our attention. The way we're living our lives requires our attention. And, and we know what the Bible says. We've heard a number of sermons on what we need to do. We've sensed God prompting us on what we need to do. And yet often we don't do what we know we need to do. And friends, this is a spiritual pandemic, especially among Christians in the Western world. You know, in Ezekiel chapter 33, God is speaking to the prophet Ezekiel about the impact his preaching's having on the people. In verse 31, the Lord says this to Ezekiel. My people come to you, as they usually do, and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Now, David Daniel says, if God were speaking to Ezekiel today, he would say something like this. Ezekiel, people are coming to your worship service. They're listening to your sermon, and they're taking copious notes. And on Monday morning, they gather around the water cooler, and they compliment and applaud you. They talk about what an amazing preacher you are. They download your sermon, and they pass them on to others. But here's the problem. While they love your sermons and they think that you're just such a great guy and that you knocked it out of the park, they're still greedy for unjust gain. Their lives remain unchanged. They leave the worship service and they say, man, I love that guy. But come Wednesday, they're pretty much forgotten 95% of what you taught and they haven't changed at all. You spoke on generosity. They're still greedy and stingy as ever, spending most of what they have on themselves. You spoke on keeping a, right, a tight t a rein on your tongue. They're still criticizing, slandering, and gossiping. This is what James is getting at with his analogy of the mirror. We can become, and this is the pandemic, the spiritual pandemic I'm talking about. We can become professional hearers of the word. Rating worship services, sermons and Bible studies, and somehow missing the point of it all. Why God gave us the scriptures in the first place. We were given the scriptures not just to read and to learn. We were given the scriptures to apply them and live them out in our lives. Back in Matthew 7, Jesus warns us. He says, if you do not put your faith into action, one day when the storms come, just like a poorly built house, your life and your faith's going to collapse on the other hand, he says in verse 24, if you hear these words of mine and you put them into practice, your life will stand firm and thrive. Because you have learned that God is faithful even in the storms. Okay, so 
I'm going to stop right here. And I'm going to ask, how are you doing? These words of Jesus and the words of James are difficult to hear, aren't they? They make us uncomfortable. We'd much rather ignore them or explain them away. And yet, friends, we need to give serious attention to this. You know, in James 2.17, James writes, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, it's a dead faith. Now, here's the thing. I believe every true Christian understands this and wants to live out their faith. They don't just want to hear the word. They want to do what it says. But far too often... That doesn't happen, particularly in the Western world. And God's redemptive purposes in the world are not accomplished, at least not to the degree that God would want it to be accomplished. And so for the remainder of this message, I want to speak to some of the barriers that I believe keep us from doing what God's calling us to do, from just hearing to actually moving to doing. First, some of you are feeling a little unsure of your faith right now. As you've been reflecting on the words of Jesus and James, even as I've been talking, you're wondering if your faith is real. You're wondering if you're doing enough to please God and sometimes wondering whether you can ever do enough to please God, and that tempts you to not even try, to actually not do anything, because you don't think you can measure up anyways. Well, if that's how you're feeling, then sometime today or tomorrow, I strongly encourage you to read Romans chapters 3 to 5, and also Ephesians chapter 2. Now, I don't have time to unpack those passages of Scripture. But here's a summary of what they say. Every religion on this planet, outside of Christianity, teaches that the only way to reach God and to win his acceptance and favor is through doing good works. That often includes a list of religious rituals as well. Well, that is not what James is teaching here. That is not what the scripture teaches. The good news of the Christian faith is this. We can never do enough to reach God or to earn God's favor through our good works or through our devotion to him or through other efforts. Therefore, because of his love and grace, God reached out to us. And through the life and death and resurrection of his son Jesus, he made a way for us to be reconciled with God and come into right relationship with him. And all that we can do is to put our trust in Jesus and in what he accomplished on the cross for us. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. 
This is the basis of our salvation. We are not saved by our works, but by our faith in what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, period. But here's the thing. This doesn't mean that doing good works is unimportant or unnecessary. In fact, if you keep reading the passage that I just read, Ephesians 2 verse 10, the Apostle Paul adds this, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, which means saved, we are saved, we're made alive in Christ. For what purpose? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Doing good works, doing what God calls us to do, is very important. It's just that our motivation for doing them is significantly different from those of other religions. Since we are already saved by grace through faith, as Christ's followers, we do not do good works to earn God's love and grace. No, we do good works to, in response to God's love and grace. And so when James says that faith without works is dead, he's saying if your faith in Jesus Christ and your friendship with Jesus is the real deal, then you will be passionate about the things that matter to him. You will do good works out of your love and your commitment to him and not out of some sense of duty or belief that by doing good works, you will receive God's forgiveness and approval. Having put your trust in Christ, you no longer have to agonize whether you've done enough to please him. You just keep your eyes on Jesus. You read and meditate on his word and out of love for him, do what he calls you and prompts you to do and nothing more. Now others of you, you're feeling inadequate right now. You want to live out your faith and do what God calls you to do. But you just feel unqualified. You feel inadequate. You, you feel afraid of failing. You know, when God called Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, Moses asked God, but, but who am I to do this? I mean, I don't have what it takes to do what you're asking me to do. And God reminded Moses, the issue wasn't who Moses was. The issue was who God is. Moses asked, well, what shall I say to them? And God said, I'll be with you, and I'll tell you what to say. You just step out and go and trust me with the rest. You know, Elizabeth Elliot tells how her husband, Jim Elliot, graduated from college with highest honors. God called him to the jungle of Ecuador to be a missionary to the Quechua Indians. Everything the Quechua Indians respected in a man, 
Jim was unqualified for. He graduated with higher honors in classical Greek, but he couldn't speak a word of one of the easiest languages in the world. They never met someone who couldn't speak their language. He didn't know how to thatch a roof, and they'd never met a man who didn't know how to do that. He didn't know how to navigate a canoe up, up the rapids. They'd never met a man who couldn't do that. Back in the U.S., Elliot was admired for many things, including his faith and his intellect, his degrees, use of the English language, and various other abilities. But to the Quechua Indians, he was a total loser. But you see, God called him to go to the Quechua Indians. And he believed that God was with him and he put his trust in God to do what he could not do or accomplish. So let me ask you, what has God asked you to do? Do you feel qualified? Do you find thoughts playing in your mind that say, you know, I'm, I'm incompetent. I can't do this. I'm inadequate for the task. Well, the truth is, you are inadequate for the task that God's calling you to, even as I'm inadequate to do the things that God calls me to do. It doesn't matter how talented or how gifted or how many degrees or years of experience that you have, you are still inadequate to do the job without God. Elizabeth Elliot says, nobody is ever adequate for any job that God has assigned. And yet God is with you. And despite all of your feelings of inadequacy or fear of failure, he will do in and through you what you could never accomplish in your own strength if you reach out to him and ask him. You see, it is in our times of greatest fear and desperation, those times when we feel completely inadequate or unqualified, that God grows our faith in him the most. But it will mean daily surrendering our lives, daily surrendering our pride and our self-sufficiency to him and living in humble dependence upon his enabling grace. It will mean turning to him often and saying, Lord, I, I just can't do this on my own. I need you to do what I can't do. But you see, you have to make a decision. Are you going to do what God's asking you to do, step out in faith and experience the faith-filled adventure that he has in store for you? Or are you going to shrink back, do what's safe and easy, and give your life to lesser things and never see your faith grow the way God wants it to grow. I challenge you to open up your hands to God and say, Lord, here I am. I feel inadequate. I feel totally unprepared and unqualified. I'm afraid of failure. I'm, I'm, I'm fearful of being embarrassed. But my trust and my dependence is in you. 
show me how you want me to invest the time you've given to me, the abilities you've given to me, and the resources you've given me in this next season of my life. And then anticipate hearing from God. The opportunities to put your faith into action are endless. You know, as COVID restrictions are lifted and things open up again, I can tell you there are children who need a shepherd to invest in them. There are youth who need a mentor. There are people with special needs who need a caregiver. There are new Canadians. There are working poor. There are the marginalized coming to our Friendship and Compassion Ministries who need food and help with budgeting and help in a number of different ways. There are people who need someone to pray with them for healing, to pray with them for freedom, to pray with them for God's wisdom and guidance in their life. There are shut-ins who long for someone to visit them, especially after this year. There are people in your life, a co-worker, a fellow student, a neighbor who needs a listening ear and a word of encouragement and ultimately hope in Christ. There are opportunities to serve the Lord behind the scenes in, in, in maintenance, in tech, in operations, and the like. The opportunities are endless. God will direct your steps if you open up your life to him and say, Lord, here I am. Where do you want to use me for your glory? And here's the good part. In verse 25, James says, when you do what God calls you to do, you will be blessed in what you do. You know, the word blessed means to be incredibly happy. It means to be fulfilled, satisfied, and to experience the fullness of joy of the Lord. And others will come to put their trust in Christ or be drawn closer to Christ because they see Christ in you. And then finally, some of you are feeling overwhelmed right now. You want to do more than just hear the word. You want to do what God's calling you to do. But you have no margin in your life. Well, as I've said all along in this series, this will always be a struggle in your life until you determine what is most important to you in life what's going to matter to you most in the end, and then going after that with laser focus. You need to decide, what is the one thing I'm going to give my life to? As long as you are chasing after a myriad of things, a myriad of counterfeit gods, you will always feel overwhelmed. You know, in Psalm 90... The psalmist is reflecting on the brevity of life and he writes this prayer to God. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The psalmist says, Lord, remind me to number my days because doing so makes me face the fact that one day the numbers are going to run out. Numbering my days 
makes me face my mortality. And death can be a teacher of wisdom. You know, God created us to enjoy this life, but death reminds us not to sell out to things that don't last. You see, we often live as if we're going to live forever. Deep down inside, we know death is coming, but we just kind of convince ourselves that we still have lots of time. And so we spend our time as if we're always going to have our spouse. We spend our time as if we're always going to have our kids. We spend our time as if we're always going to have our parents. We spend our time as if we're always going to have time to pursue the things that God calls us to, to pursue our relationship with him, to pursue real authentic friendships, to pursue the mission that God's called us to, and to pursue generosity and a life of simplicity. We got time for that, we figure. In short, we're not numbering our days, and when we don't number our days, we are tempted to presume on the grace of God and fill our days with things we will one day wish we hadn't pursued. On the other hand, when we number our days, we gain wisdom because we wake up to the fact that we do not have forever, that our time is limited, and that it's important we invest our time in that which is really going to matter, not just to us, but also to God in the end. Numbering my days projects me into the future, to my final day on this planet, and challenges me to ask, What's going to be most important to, to you then? Those of you who will be keeping your children's schedules full of activities again once things open up and will be frantically trying to ensure they experience everything possible and have every opportunity to be successful in this life, sometimes at the expense of their spiritual growth in Christ. You need to think about what will be most important to them when they stand before Jesus and make sure as their parent that their spiritual growth is given priority over these lesser things. You see, the psalmist here is saying every single day counts. And how we spend each day adds up to the sum total of what our life will become. Steve May says, if you examine your life, you will see that your life today is primarily the result of decisions you made over the years. If, for example, you're a successful surgeon... Well, it didn't happen because last week you decided to, you know, start giving a little bit of attention and effort into being a great surgeon. No, your effectiveness is the result of daily decisions that you've made down through the years to grow in your competency as a surgeon. You know, if my doctor says, you know, that I've gained 25 pounds of weight this past year, like many others, <laughs> 
That extra weight did come about because I ate a 25-pound steak the day before my appointment with him. No, that's the result of countless number of poor eating choices. Now, church, I'm sure that we understand this in the physical realm, but this is also true in the spiritual realm, and the Bible tells us that the spiritual realm is so much more important than the natural realm because it's eternal. Numbering our days means deciding what is the one thing I'm going to give my life to and then asking the Lord to help you to decide what you need to do more of and what you need to do less of. A few years ago, someone approached me after a service. He was really quite emotional. And he told me that he was just feeling God prompting him to invest in the lives of young people who are part of our church youth group, but he just didn't have the margin in his life to do it. And he said, I just don't know what to do. And so I asked him, I said, well, tell me what's eating up your time outside of work. Well, he hadn't expected that question. But he was honest enough to admit, as he reflected on it all, that he was devoting most of his time to watching television, surfing on the net, watching sports, playing sports, and video games. And so I told him, if you want to invest in people, then you're going to have to remove some of those lesser things from your calendar. And you're going to have to make room for people and the ministries you believe God's calling you to. And by the way, one day, you're going to be so glad you did. You know, over the years, I have been at the bedside of people who were dying. And I can't remember hardly ever hearing them talk about their accomplishments at work, the trophies that they won, or the stuff that they accumulated. What they mostly talked about was their relationship with God or their lack of relationship with God. Their relationship with their families and friends or their lack of relationship with their family and friends. Often, they talked about the regrets they had over misplaced priorities, wishing they had invested more in their family and friendships and in others and less in accumulating the temporary markers of success. I found when people are near the end of their lives, most see things much more clearly. Chip Ingram, he tells of a time that his wife, Teresa, was diagnosed with cancer. He says, when I learned she had cancer, I experienced clarity of vision like never before. He says, the day we got the news, it became crystal clear what mattered most. Within a week, he says, I canceled all speaking and travel for the next six months. It was easy. No second thoughts, no sense that I might miss an opportunity. Why? When you love more, you do less. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13? If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, in other words, if I'm incredibly gifted, but do not have love, 
I'm only a resounding gong. If I give all that I possess to the poor but do not have love, I gain nothing. So what's he saying? He's saying that all my accomplishments in life mean nothing without love. Anything minus love equals nothing. In other words, whatever you're doing with your time and with your life, if you're not loving God and cultivating loving relationships with other people, then you are largely wasting your time. Because the only thing that you can take with you into the next life is your friendship with Jesus and the people you loved and introduced to Jesus. Chip says, we went through surgery and then months of treatments together. Knowing I might not have much time with the person I loved the most completely transformed my priorities. You see, folks, that's what numbering your day does. It gives you clarity about what really matters and what you should pursue in life. It wakes you up to the fact that you don't have all the time in the world with your spouse or your family or your friends. You don't have all the time in the world to invest in the lives of others, including those who need the Lord. Numbering your days reminds you that you have only one shot at this. And how you invest your time really matters. It matters to God. It matters to your loved ones. And it matters to those who need the Lord. Numbering our days challenges us to no longer buy things that we may want, but don't need. So that we can be generous and give those things which will ultimately impact the eternal trajectory of people's lives. Numbering our days reminds us not to worship our work. It reminds us to reduce the complexity of our lives by embracing the simplicity of the life and the way of Christ. But it all comes down to making a decision about the one thing that you're going to give your life to. For you to live is what? My prayer for all of us is that we will settle this issue once and for all. That we will not only say, for me to live is Christ, but we will live each day as if we really mean it. To the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. Let's close our eyes. Let's ask the two questions that really get at the heart of today's sermon. Lord, what are you saying to me? You know, folks, that's an important question. But if it's the only question that you ask, nothing will change. It's answering the next question where change happens. So we not only ask, Lord, what are you saying to me, but we ask, Lord, what do you want me to do about it? Take a moment right now. and respond to those questions.